Before the start of this next episode, I wanted to thank you all for taking the time to listen, comment, share and give me feedback on this podcast, Protect and Serve. When I set out on this journey to create a new and fresh podcast on the lives of our men and women in policing, I would never have thought it would have received as much support as it has. My goal now is to get more and more people to support the show, so I in turn can support two incredible organisations, PTSD 999 and Trojan Wellbeing, both supporting men and women of our emergency services who are affected by mental health from the challenges they face in their professional lives. So please, if you haven't already, like, follow and share the show so we can all help those that help us when we need it most. It means so much to me and it means so much to them. Thank you. Please note that this episode contains descriptions of violence that some people may find disturbing. Listener discretion is advised. My name is Oliver Lawrence. I spent over 12 years as a police officer serving in some of the harshest environments Australia has to offer. Now working as a senior investigator, security intelligence and crisis management expert in London, I've had the chance to meet and speak with some of the brave men and women of law enforcement who found themselves at the front line of the world's most infamous investigations and global incidents. From the underworld of bikey gangs and the mafia, to terrorist attacks of unthinkable magnitude. In this series, I'll sit down with these brave men and women to hear their first-hand accounts of these events and how they got there. Welcome to Protect and Serve. This, Justin, you were looking at a, obviously a very disturbing live shot there. That is the World Trade Center. Killer Zelfadine Rezji has just entered the hotel grounds. He's looking for targets. The outcome in U.S. District Court today was not good for New Jersey boss Tony Pro Provenzano. Just how seriously the police are taking claims of abuse at the hands of Jimmy Savile came into sharp focus. In the UK, police identifying the suspect who killed two people on London Bridge. Police say they are investigating a suspected connection with a radical Republican organization, the new IRA. Freedom itself was attacked this morning by a faceless coward. And freedom will be defended. Edmund Burke once said, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. My next guest has been involved in over a hundred homicide investigations across London and as a result of these has pursued some of the most violent and dangerous offenders in our communities. From policing the council estates of Greenwich where he grew up to responding to the frightening and very confronting 7-7 terror attacks across London, former Detective Inspector Steve Keogh's experiences are nothing short of incredible and it's a pleasure to welcome him to Protect and Serve. Okay, so welcome to the podcast, Protect and Serve. It's really, really interesting on today's episode to have Steve Keogh with us. Steve is a retired detective inspector from the Met, has um, been all around London in various different units and has had a, quite a fascinating career starting from 1991 all up until when he retired in very recently in November last year. So Steve, welcome to protect and serve how are you hi ollie yeah i'm good thank you i really appreciate you having me on it's much appreciated no 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 it's uh i've um been reading your book which we'll talk about towards the end but more importantly been looking at your biography in terms of where you've worked and served throughout your career now like every good detective i start my podcast by venturing back into the early days because i think there's always a significant difference between what occurred in the early 90s to what's happening by today's standards and what's happening and what listeners may be used to so 
you joined the job or the Met, as we should probably say, in 1991. How was that experience at the academy? How did you prepare yourself for that? It, I, I found it quite difficult personally, and and the reason being, I was I was young and in love, and um, we just bought a flat together, me and my to be wife, we were boyfriend girlfriend at the time. And dragging myself every Sunday night up to Hendon for 20 weeks, I found hard work. Um, actually, actually, the, 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 the 20 weeks up there itself was okay, um, but I, I was just always itching to get out. Um, and it's probably the same in, 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 for any, anybody, but I was always looking at the people that were a little bit ahead of me, wanting to be them, wanting to be the ones that were... <laughs> and and those ones that were just leaving to me were like, oh, wow, can you imagine that going out onto, onto division then? Um, but yeah, I got through it and, um, it was just one of those things you had to do. I wouldn't say I enjoyed it, but I didn't hate it. It was just, it was just it was something I had to do, I suppose. What steered you in the direction of a vocation in policing? Because obviously it's a massive decision for anybody to want to probably give up because it's not a career. It's almost a lifestyle days, afternoons, night shifts, long investigations, big jobs, sometimes away from, from home for long periods of time. What was the, what was the defining moment that caused you to think, I oh, know policing, I think is going to be for me. It, it was probably boredom, and and I tell you for why. I was when I, I was I was very young when I joined. I was I was twenty, and at the time I didn't realise it, but I, I was a kid essentially. Um, and when I left school, I started off to I was training to be an accountant, and it was so dull. It was so boring. The offices that I I was working in were at the back of the old Bailey on Newgate Street. I used to see all the comings and goings and like when there, when there was like an IRA prisoner or something, you'd have the special escort group turning up with all the lights and sirens and it all looked really exciting. And there was me sat there trying to work out why two columns didn't quite add up day Armed after day. calculator. Yeah. And it was before <laughs> the days of computers. So it literally was pe- pen, paper and a calculator. And I was just so bored. Um, and and I, I, I was, it was, a, the, you know, this program, The Bill, that was on at the time, and I was quite into that. And I just thought, that all looks like a much more exciting life than I'm doing. Um, and I've never been motivated by money. You don't join the police for financial benefit, do you? Um, so it was like a career in accountancy or a, an exciting career in the police, and, and it was the police that went over. So when you told your family that you were going to be changing because it's a huge change from accountancy to policing uh, you know that's quite a drastic change in vocation and when you change when you when you tell your family that's what you're going to do is there any concerns you know how do you manage like I assume you're your mother and father at the time and your girlfriend you're going to be taking on what is quite a confrontational physical demanding role was there any kind of pushback no I don't think so there's probably a bit of surprise because um, like you say it's a, it was a complete kind of 180 really you're going down one route and then you go go down another I suppose for, for for me, I come from a background. I grew up on a council estate. I had friends that sort of went the other side, if you know what I mean. Um, so it, it was a bit out of the blue in terms of it. What, what the school I come from, people didn't join the police. They were much more likely to end up in in the court on in the in the dock than than given evidence. Um, so it was a little bit of a surprise, but uh, full support. Um, my family, my, my, my immediate family, none of them were in trouble. I got loads of cousins and stuff that ended up in prison and whatnot. So there was a few, there was some awkward conversations in the, <laughs> the more extended family. I was at one barbecue and my cousin came up to me and he said, oh, Steve, I'm, I'm a little bit worried. I said, what's the matter, mate? He said, I've got a warrant out for me. <laughs> oh, thanks, Claire. <laughs> what'd you do with that so yeah so it was that it was those kind of things that that, that were a little bit awkward and and also as well when I first when I first got I know I'm jumping ahead a little bit when I first got posted I got posted to the area I got brought up in 
Um, oh, so there was conflict there. It was a challenge, yeah. And there were people I went to school with, I nicked and that sort of stuff. So, yeah, so certain things I had to get over, being from where I was and policing it. That's a really interesting point. You see, I, I, I emigrated from the UK to Australia and then started my policing career. So most of the people that I've come across in my law enforcement life, I've never had anything to do with and don't know. But you just recalled there that there was instances when you were working out in Greenwich where you're having to arrest former classmates. Now, that's a really unusual... Not only does that test your ethics and integrity, which you clearly pass with flying colours, because, you know, we police impartially, but that must have been a huge challenge in terms of how they responded to you. It was, yeah, and I got abuse for it. And um, But but you're doing your job, aren't you? And, and ultimately, those ones that were upset by me doing it they, they weren't my friends they were not the, no. I've, I've, my my good friends from school are still in touch with now I still go out with um we were out one night actually in um, Blackheath in South London and there was a fella that was in my class at primary school and he came up to me he said oh Steve you're still in the police and I thought yeah yeah how'd you, how'd you know that he said you don't remember do you so what used to happen was um, because I knew the area, and I and I, and I say I went to, I went to a bit of a rough school, so I, I kind of I kind of had a head start on on a lot of people because because of that, and it was before the days you used to take fingerprints. So people used to call me in if there was someone that they didn't they they didn't we weren't sure if there was the real name. They were giving yeah. false details, and he said, "Yeah, I so said I got nicked. I got brought into Greenwich, and they called you in, and I was given a false name." And you said, "Oh no, that's and you said my name, his name." And I was like, oh, mate, I'm so sorry. He said, no, no, don't worry about it. I said, I, I bought him a drink. Yeah, I was like, and we were all, we were all fine. Um, but, I, but that was probably a good 15, 20 years after that. But yeah, I mean, it's not it's not ideal. Um, but like I say, it definitely gave me a head start. And I think policing, a lot of a lot of what you do in policing, a bit of detective work or any, any, any kind of policing, it's about understanding people. And by policing an area that I grew up in, I, I feel I had that advantage over people that were coming in from the outside because... I could spot a wrong on a mile off. And, and it, it literally was because I grew up with them. But I could literally spot him a mile off driving down the road. It'd be like, yeah, I love him. Um, and nine times out of ten, I, I was probably right. So, because one of the greatest challenges when you graduate to a division is actually knowing its geographical boundaries, its layout, you know, the hidey spots, the back roads. And, and obviously, you had that geographical knowledge and you also had that really good street cred of understanding who was who in that area so some huge advantage for you in your early stages of your career which then which then moved you on what what point once you had this really successful intro to general duties policing at what point did you realize that you needed more from it in terms of pursuing this this life of investigative work as a detective being a detective wasn't even on my on my radar i was more interested in being a dog handler that sounded like quite an exciting life um, but what I realized quite quickly is what what I enjoyed and what, what I really enjoyed was arresting people. And to me, it was it, it didn't feel like work. It felt like a game. Like I come on duty and I get the keys to a car and I go out and it's like, right, who can I find? And I just I got that buzz of just because you you don't know what's going to happen. I mean, most times you don't. But like there'll be, there'll be many, many days where you go out and you'll come back and you go, wow, what a great day that was. And I really enjoyed that that buzz of arresting people. And the more serious the crime the more of a buzz I seem to get. Some of your listeners will, will understand when, when, when I talk about the old days where there was a crime squad. And if you if you were considered like a, a thief taker, if you like, um, mm. you get like invited to come along. And, and, and that's what happened. They said, why don't you apply for the crime squad? And that kind of, you end up, when you when you get onto that sort of, it's, it's like a merry-go-round. You get on the crime squad, you, know, you do a bit of burglary squad, you do a bit of main office, and, and it drags you towards being a detective. 
And I kind of gravitated towards that way because of what I enjoyed. And, and let's say that was nicking people. And you worked in Peckham CID, which is notoriously the home and the backyard of our great people and the stars of Only Fools and Horses. <laughs> what was it like working in Peckham as a detective in that era? I must have been quite fascinating insights. Yeah, well, it was it was good, actually. I mean, I, I was only there for a couple of years. I didn't I didn't stay there for too long. Um, but it was a day, it, the days of um, proper CID teams where you dealt with everything. So there was a robbery squad, burglary squad and a CID. Um, so we'd deal with rapes, shootings, none of that was siphoned off. So you were really, really busy. Um, I remember one night of duty, I was at the King's College Hospital and I had um, three uh, victims of robbery where the, the motive for these robbers was to go around and stab people. And actually, it was the same oh, people wow. that stabbed Damalola Taylor. It was that gang. Ten-year-old Damalola Taylor, wearing his distinctive puffer jacket, was filmed on closed-circuit television cameras. He was stabbed to death on the North Peckham estate, where he had moved to from Nigeria just a few months earlier. Um, and, and so I had three, I had three stab victims, three scenes, and it was just me, me and a PC. I, I'm a little bit of a control freak, so when I was a DC, night duty CID was brilliant because it meant I was in charge, so I could go out and, and I wasn't being told what to do. But that that kind of thing gave me a real buzz that having having to manage the scenes, manage the victim, and everything that went with it. I really enjoyed that. How do you, in that type of a scenario where you've got three victims to to very serious violent robberies? How do you prioritise what's important now to you when you've got victims' welfare to take into account, you've got scenes to manage, which are just important as your victims because that's where everything's happened. How do you start to prioritise those important things? Because I assume there were conflicting priorities. Yeah, I mean, it's, it's what you're going to lose first is what you have to prioritise. So if you, the crime scene is obviously going to be really important. Um, and, and later on when I, when I joined the murder, murder team, those skills sort of got reinforced and become more you know, like you get taught certain procedures at, at murder scenes that i i kind of did when i was on the on on borough but i hadn't properly been taught them but you kind of you get used to well if if there's a witness the witness is going to disappear so we need to get hold of the witnesses early um if there's forensics there we have so you kind of think right what what are the things that are going to go missing if I don't get hold of them now. And that's that's what I used to kind of think when I prioritise stuff. Going to fast forward the clock a little bit now here, a couple of years to probably one of the greatest incidents which um, really brought terrorism to the forefront of Londoners and certainly demonstrated that we um, were not immune from the threats that affect you know the global society with regards to terrorist incidents. And, and that was the, the 2005-7-7 bombings. Now, you were part of the body and evidence recovery team, which sounds like quite a confronting role both emotionally um both physically demanding i imagine the hours you had to put in at edgware road tube station and i was wondering if you could just talk us through that particular day that you are working and and that investigation yeah so yeah so from peckham i applied to so 13 as it was then um enter terrorist branch and it was it was a bit different back then so nowadays you've got um so so it was so 13 and so 12 so the anti-terrorist branch and the special branch were completely different entities work together but can different entities and they've all merged together now so i was i was anti-terrorist branch and what we were essentially the ones that would do the physical physical hands-on with things so arresting arresting people um searches um interviews that kind of thing while special branch would do the sneaky beaky bit in the, in the background um so and we were we were trained it was it, it was a bit of a crossover between the irish terrorism and 
this was the first proper incident with um, Islamic terrorism. So we were trained um, to deal with bomb scenes, but the way they would do it was, was they'd blow a car up. We'd go down to an army base, they'd blow a car up, and then we'd have to we'd have to go in and, and treat that scene. Um, so we were trained to to deal with bomb scenes, but we'd never seen one like this. It was completely was completely different, completely different mo. And we were on call, um, same with, with most central units. You'd always have a twenty four hour response. So we were on call. But it was a Monday morning. We were sat in the office. And bits started to come through that there'd been been something had happened on on the underground, and we we had a big telly in the office and it had like Sky News on, so we were watching it, and there were conflicting reports coming through. I think there was they were saying things like there was a power surge and whatnot. Breaking news we're getting from the PA Newswire that there's been reports of an explosion outside Liverpool Street Station. That of course in the East End of London. We've got signals in the Tower Hill area. The Whitechapel area, so it could be an HP main cable. Yeah. Um, so we're not looking at an act of aggression at the moment. I've had a report that there was an explosion at Liverpool Street and Edgware Road. Uh, we've, heard, we've had a report of a bang west of Edgware Road. I don't know anything about Liverpool Street. A uh, high voltage cable went in the Liverpool Street area. Right. That's where it's caused the bang. Right. As is usual, when you have an explo when you have a train hit the tunnel, people have an explosion. It is not an explosion. explosion. It's just that you um, hit the tunnel wall, yeah. Yeah. I can't hear it. All right, it's not what Paul told me. So um, what did he say? It's an explosion of train fatalities. It oh. looks like a HT cable blew. Yeah. Okay. Oh, we don't think it's terrorist <laughs> at the moment. It looks as if a train's what, the train's come off the road, into a road. Right. That's yeah. a, maybe that's called some sort of overload or whatever. So they're not bombed. No, it's not believed to be terrorist related. But then we got told quite early, actually, it, it was it was bomb, and then it was multiple bombs, um, and it, it, was, it was it was chaos as you can imagine. There's all sorts of people putting different phone calls in. So we we were we were working at one point. There was about eight, eight or nine bombs, and then then so we, we weren't deploying straight away. We needed to get a good understanding of well what has gone on and where. Um, so eventually we we worked out that it was four. Um, the three underground and the one bus and my colleague and I, I was a DC and a colleague DS, we got we got sent to Edgware Road, we were the first from Antiterrorist Branch to turn up and it was a scene of absolute, it was calm as you like so all, all the all the um, live injured victims had all been taken to hospital so what yeah. we what we turned up to was um, a crime scene essentially it, it, there was, um, there were fire, fire brigade, police officers but it was all very very calm um, so we got there and we, and we essentially we didn't leave for two weeks. We got put up in a hotel opposite in the Hilton and we didn't leave for two weeks. And there were certain steps we had to go through beforehand before we actually went in. And that was so what, what happened was we got a little port cabin got brought down and that was our, our sort of base, our control base, if you like. And we had some cameras put in the tunnel. Um, so we could, and when there was one particular victim who had been blown out of the train and we could see her and we could see it, we got a fairly good look at her. And it was quite hard actually because whilst it was that we couldn't really do an awful lot whilst we were waiting for all the experts to do to do their thing before we could go into the tunnel um and we we're watching the news and there were lots of people going around with photographs of relatives and because there, there was chaos so people were in hospital and it might not necessarily mean because you you your victim your your relatives missing that might be dead they might just be in hospital but there was this dad with a picture of his daughter and and we could see it was almost certainly the, the woman on the track. So that that was that, those sort of things are hard. 
four bombs detonated on the London transport system, causing chaos and confusion. They're still desperately waiting for emergency services. We've got two major incidents. Yeah, the, the emergency services have declared they're on their way down there. Um, we're issuing a system-wide code amber. I heard a very loud bang, the lights went out and the carriage filled with smoke and uh, people were thrown forward. I don't know what happened. You probably know more than me. It was just, I don't know, but there's some seriously injured people there. It's not good. And then eventually we were allowed to go in. Um, and one of the first things we had to do was bring the, the dead bodies out. Um, so I think there were, f there were four, we were in pairs, there were four pairs. Um, so I did, I did, I did two, two of the bodies. And, and one of them was a bit, we, we started to feel sorry for this person because they clearly had taken an awful lot of the blast. Um, and I, I won't go into graphic detail, but um, there, w there wasn't an awful lot left of them. And, and this was before we realized it was a suicide bomber, but this was, this was actually the bomber themselves, Mohammed Sadiq Khan. So th then, th then we realized actually, no, this, this was actually a suicide bomb, which it, it was the first in the UK. I had to get into the train, essentially put him in a bag because there wasn't that much left of him. Um, and then what we had to do, we had to treat the, that as a crime scene. So there was probably about 100 yards of track where we had to just go on our hands and knees and just bring everything out. So we look at, we, one of the things you're looking for is the device itself, which would be obviously blown to smithereens. So that you're looking for the most, most minute um, clue that down there. And so you would walk, so you'd, you'd walk in your pairs, one would be on the hands and knees, and then one behind would have um, a, a big box with different bags. So depending on what you come across, we go into the bags, a bit of the train, um, personal property from victims, um, and there was a, a bag for body parts under a certain size that would, that would go into a bag. Um, if we found a, a finger or foot or something like that, we'd stop and that would get exhibited. Um, so it, it, was, it, it wasn't pleasant work. It was it was quite hard work and it was summer as well which which made it doubly hard because it was really hot down there um but we, we eventually got through and um it, yeah I, it was one of those things I, you, you'll notice ollie when you're as a police officer if something like this happens you you want to be part of it you want to be able to contribute in some way so i left in october and this happened um in july so i was pleased i wasn't pleased it happened obviously i was pleased to be able to have been there and contributed um, and been able to do my part. There's so much to examine in terms of that whole incident, in terms of your response and the incredible work that you did in, in helping to not only reunite victims with family members and to be able to bring some level of closure as to what on earth happened, although it was fairly evident early on. But when you when when you when you first when you're sitting in, when you're sitting in the office, if we just wind back, you're sitting in the office and you and you hear all this going on, you come across as quite a resilient human being. And one of the themes of our podcast is ordinary people doing extraordinary work, which I think really does sum up a lot of the emergency services, not just police officers, but fire service, ambulance. You know, it's ordinary people responding to quite significant events right across London and and, and the world for that matter, because with this we, you know, podcast is. Is, is crossing countries what i wanted to ask you was is when you first respond to that is there a level of fear in terms of you know was there any concern for secondary devices and 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 these real nefarious characters targeting first responders how did you manage those fears and anxieties that there could be more well you 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 consider that so we had the bomb disposal uh people down and 
before we even went in the tunnel, we were confident that it would it had been um, properly examined. So it's in your mind, not not in a fear way, but it's in your mind as a you need to make sure that's done and 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 you can get on with your job properly. Um, I, fear is a funny thing for me. I don't. I, I, when I look back at the job, I don't. I can't really think of times I've been scared. I actually, I, I can't. <laughs> There was one time I won't go. I won't go. I'm going off at a tangent now. But there was one time where I found a dead body in a certain circumstance, and I ran out of a flat screaming like a child. Um, but I don't. I don't. I don't think fear really comes into it because when 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 you're doing the job, um, and and your listeners that are in the in the in the police will understand this. You, you you kind of you you, you become sort of a, uh, it becomes automatic you know you've got a job to do you know what you know what you have to do and you just get on with it um maybe later on when you sit down and reflect and you think oh that was a bit scary um but you're over it then so fear's a funny thing for me i, mean, I, I can only talk about myself but um i, I think adrenaline uh, yeah, i found so adrenaline that blocker it is, yeah. It's it stops you feeling fear because I mean it's it's just it's different types of emotions, isn't it? Fear's an emotion, adrenaline. So it's just because adrenaline allows you to get on with something without without the fear stopping you. Um, so I, yeah, fear. I, I don't think fear really come into an awful lot of what I did because because you're doing you're professionally doing a job. I can't allow us to go on any further, really, until you kind of reflect on this job when you're running out screaming like a child. Tell us a little <laughs> bit about that one. It sounds quite unique. <laughs> so you know, you know, uh, they lowered the uh, they lowered the height of, of people joining the police. Um, yeah. This is a random way to start this question. This uh, this answer. So uh, my understanding was because in order for diversity, um, you, you, by hiring the like, you, you, you're taking away a barrier from from certain people joining. Um, but in my experience, it just meant we had a lot of short uh, white men. <laughs> it didn't add to our diversity at all. It just it just ended up with shorter men. And I was with this fella who was five foot two, um, and he was a probationer. And I, I was I, I'd had a two or three years in, so we would we got called to it was somebody hadn't been seen for a while, and they were and they were worried about someone hadn't been seen. It was a block of flats. It was on the first floor, so it did the usual. Opened the letterbox, stuck my nose in, and I couldn't smell anything. Um, and the neighbour said the windows in these flats are a bit dodgy. I can give you a ladder, and um, you can climb up and and get in. So I said to the probationer, "Right, well you can do that." So he got the ladder and put it up against the window. <laughs> but because he was too short, he couldn't get from the ladder to the, to, to the window. So I was oh, like, "Okay, I'll do it." it. <laughs> so I, I climbed in, and it was the bedroom. And as I climbed in, there was a like a, a dresser table at the window. I pushed it and it fell over and it was leaning onto the bed like 45 degrees on the bed so I, I climbed climbed over opened the flat and we had a look around and it was it, the electricity had gone off and it was quite dark so we needed a torch to, to look around couldn't see anything couldn't smell anything it was nothing and the only place I hadn't searched was just the other side of the bed where the um that the, the dresser had fallen on so I stood on the bed and as I stood on a bed a leg flew up and hit me (laughs) and I wasn't expecting it and I literally I literally ran screaming he followed me out the flat screaming himself when he got outside he's like why are we screaming (laughs) and then what what then happened because I disturbed the body then all the all the flies come up and the smell had come up and it was I think he hadn't been found for it was a good few months and he basically was it melted into the carpet most of him so it wasn't particularly nice 
And when, when we called the doctor to, to the FMA to come and um, pronounce that the life extinct, she didn't even go in the flat. She just stuck her nose in and smelled it and said, "Yeah, he's dead." Uh, but yeah, it's probably the, that's probably where I've been the most scared. <laughs> I'll just tell you a very quick funny story. I, I had a similar one. I was the OIC of a small country town in Australia and was called down to the classic scenario of an individual that hasn't been seen for three weeks. There's a large buildup of mail, uh, it's, but there's, we can hear running water going. And when I attended that particular scene, I went with the, uh, I was called there by the neighbour. It was two o'clock in the morning. Everything always happens at ridiculous hours, these particular types of jobs, especially to me when I was in. And when I got there, I got authorization from my boss to break in. So I broke a window and I actually said to the guy beside me, quite stupid, I said, do you want to go in? And I'll watch the scene outside. I'll just make sure no one one comes in and... And I no, obviously he did, he declined that offer, and I went in, and an old mate was sitting on a chair in a shower after had been sitting there for nearly two and a half weeks. It was quite incredible. <laughs> Similar type of scene. I ran out screaming like a girl, <laughs> or like a child, I should say. Yeah, like a child. Yeah, you can't say that. Yeah, anymore. Like, yeah no, no. We'll go back to um, Edgware Road and the scene recovery. Really, really quite confronting. Really quite challenging. And 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 you recalled there that you'd sent down cameras and you could see a victim um, down on the line or in around the train area. It, it's, it seems to be quite confronting having to, to, to crawl, as you described it, through the tunnel, collecting evidence and, and in, I assume, pitch black with a torch? No, well, they'd set up um, uh, like those big uh, lights that you, you get, like um, like decorators would use. So, yeah. so it, was, it was very light in there. And actually, we as was actually Badgerware Road was a double track, and we were only about a hundred yards from the station. And the station itself had, was an was an open one, so it didn't have a roof. So as as bad as it was, our one was nowhere near as bad as the one that was at Russell Square, which so we were um, Circle and District Line, which is very very. I mean, it's almost on the surface it, it runs around London, whereas the um, Piccadilly Line, which was which is where this bomb was is hundreds of feet down um and it was about a mile into the track so they had to get in and back and forth to the train on a on one of those little little trains that you kind of i think it was electric one but a little electric train took them back and forth and it was a single track so they had to get down the side of the train sort of a few feet either side and in the end it was so bad down there that they had um the divers going in with their breathing apparatus to do body recovery because it was just for, for for the for the people that were without that equipment it just become um undoable how do you support each other through that in terms of your colleagues because i don't think anybody ever really knows how they're going to respond to something like that you know are there are there colleagues that are clearly distressed by what's going on is that you know that are you having to support each other through that process it's it's a funny one because i i know for a fact that people that i was working with had were affected um but at the time there was no there were no signs of that and and there's there's like a there's a there's a there's a humor that um that people have like a dark humor yeah. i suppose it's the same in the military and the fire brigade in the police and for me that's how you get yourself through it when you're doing the job um and it's only as i suppose later on when I was, earlier on when i was talking about when you reflect later i think there was a there were a couple of people i, I know were affected by it and i think the met police have to have some responsibility for that now what happened was afterwards after it all finished a month or two later we got put in a room and we were asked does anybody want counseling and 
a room full of it was quite a blokey place down at the terrace branch um uh, quite a macho so who's going to put their hand up and say mm. so it, it wasn't done in a way that was conducive to you accepting it um so and it was put it was put to us just once and it was like no we're fine don't need it but i know a couple of people were affected um and and went out on the job because of it how do you explain it to family because families, you know, I've, I've always said in, in a lot of my previous episodes, our families are the unsung heroes of our times in policing because they see the trials, they see the tribulations, they see the highs, they see the very low lows, and they almost go on this journey with you. And I, I often used to debrief to the point I thought I could to my wife as to kind of what I was, what I was going through, what I was witnessing. Was it the same for you? It's, it was funny because many of my friends and family would come up to me and say, are you okay? And they were concerned because they knew they didn't really know exactly what I'd, what I'd done, but they knew I was involved in it. And I, my answer was always the same. Yeah, I'm fine. And I started to then think, why am I so fine? It's, it was like, mm. I started to worry that, well, should I, if everybody's asking me the same question, are you okay? Should I not be <laughs> weirdly? So and it made me reflect on on it, and I was thinking, right, well, why am I okay? Why 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 am I not affected by the things that I've been doing? And, and I just come to the conclusion that I I I've, I do my job, um, and the way I do my job is I don't I don't think about things, I don't I don't dwell on it, I compartmentalize. So if I've got anything that I'm doing which isn't particularly nice, I'll just lock it away. Yeah, and we probably all do that. A lot of a lot of people do that, um, and I think I'm probably quite lucky that it. it think it stays there i don't i don't then sit on it and worry about it later on or i don't think it comes back and and um and affects me in any way but but also you 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 were talking early on about resilience and if you if you drop the 20 year old me who just just left accountancy in into edgeware road and said right get on and do that it probably would have broken me but you but you don't do you so i that was i joined in 91 that was 2005 so 14 years of dead bodies um crime scenes victims 40 to be able to build up that resilience so when i first came out as a probationer they would just send you to all the sudden deaths they'd send you to a post-mortem so you you get used to death you get used to body parts so by the time you get to that that underground station you've built up that resilience to be able to do your job and get on with it professionally and and as well where i was talking about wanting to be able to 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 me we come on to murder later on but to me what i was doing was for those victims and their families and you can't do that if 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 you're too concerned about your own feelings or you you need to you need to do a proper job don't you and that and that's what i was more focused on than anything and it must have been a huge moment for you later on in that month to be part of the arrest team of hamdi adas isaac who was the individual that was arrested for the failed bombings um and that was also linked to the sad shooting of Jean Charles de Menzies, who he was mistaken for, is that how was that experience? Yeah, that was that that was that was a bizarre one because um, where I said we spent two weeks down there, it literally was two weeks. So my first day off was the twenty first of July, and I was I, I woke up in bed to my phone going off, um, and it was just a text message saying there's been more come to NSY come Scotland Yard I was like oh you're joking <laughs> so I literally spent two weeks and then you realise that it was fouled so that where they'd it was almost exactly the same scenario they'd gone into the underground stations but their 
that they hadn't set the devices properly so they just went off in the in the um in the bags so then i i was acting ds at the time so i got put in charge of an arrest team so we were working closely with um special branch and so19 the firearms unit and we got there were there were two addresses where, where where that suspect was supposed to be was it one in south and one in north and we got sent to the north ones i think we, i think we might have been just sat up in a police station at the time ready to be ready to be called on by surveillance teams and then we then we got a message through saying that he'd been shot police confirm a man shot dead on an underground train was linked to yesterday's attempted bomb attacks and the first thing is you know, there's a bit of we've, we've got him kind of thing you know you, you, yeah. you know what i'm saying don't you there's, yeah. there's what this terrorist yeah. was trying to do that and we've got him but then very quickly we got we got um information started coming back to us actually no it wasn't him it was the wrong person um, and, and obviously, sadly, it was John Charles Mendes. Now, a line just in about the shooting in Stockwell earlier. The man shot dead at that tube station is not thought to be one of the four men shown in CCTV pictures released this afternoon. That line, um, just in. Police in London have admitted that the man shot dead at an underground station on Friday had no connection with the series of attempted bomb attacks across the capital on Thursday. It's emerged that he was a 27-year-old Brazilian, Jean-Charles de Menezes. He was working in London as an electrician. In a statement, the Metropolitan Police expressed regret for the man's death, which it described as a tragedy. So, yeah, that, I mean, it was a completely different experience, that one. That, that, that was more... We were out looking for the people rather than dealing with the crime scene itself. You're listening to part one of my chat with former Detective Inspector Steve Keogh of the Metropolitan Police Service. In part two, Steve talks us through the harrowing investigation into the high-profile murder of a former British actress and her children. Every murder you, you investigate, you give your all. Um, but there definitely are some cases you, you look back on that were more personal, and this was certainly one of them. Coming next on Protect and Serve. Protect and Serve is a Mash Pumpkin production. Hosted by Oliver Lawrence. Research and questions by Oliver Lawrence and Robert Wynn Stanley. Produced, edited and sound designed by Jack Lawrence. This podcast is part of the ACAST Creator Network.